Hey guys, welcome to episode 143 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. Can you believe we've said that 143 times? Plus. we Oh, yes. Because <laughs> we do it on the Patreon, yeah. even though we know we know that you know who we are. Yeah, but we have to do it. I feel like we have no choice. Yeah, and we're very unoriginal, guys. No creativity here. I mean, we named our... <laughs> podcast that you cry that is very true you know what i was uh, i saw this uh it was a tiktok it's like from an old thing a long time ago i don't know if anyone's uh-huh. ever seen it but it's like this guy um he's like picking on this other guy in front of a building and he's like you guys have no talent no talent and he's like i went to juilliard you guys have no talent and like that's how i feel about like us when it comes to the creativity i know we just have podcast. no creativity <laughs> we try really hard yeah But I'm sure you guys like hearing it every time. So we hope everything is going really well and you are all enjoying this holiday season and everyone's spending time with their loved ones and hopefully you have all of your shopping done. I guarantee you most of the people do not have their shopping done. I know. Because it's hard to shop for people. It is very difficult. And for kids too. Yes, it is. Well, we have both of our nieces taken care of. We do. We, we're, we were ahead of the game. Yes. We were ahead of the game this year. We were good. I love that Amazon allows you to like send it already wrapped there. I like that yeah. too. <laughs> there was one gift that couldn't be wrapped. So I wrote on the note like, we love you, Emsley. Sorry, Mel. Sorry you have to wrap this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I am very eager to get into this episode. I do want to preface with this. I didn't intend for this to be a two-parter, but as I was writing the script for this episode, and I was, usually when I write the scripts, they're eight, nine pages, not double-spaced, but as I was halfway through this case and I was already at page 13, I was like, I think this needs to be a two-parter. Yeah, I remember uh, (laughs) Kay walked up to me and was just like, hey, listen, um, I don't know what to do with this. I don't want to make it a two-parter, but you have no idea the amount of information in it. And I was like, you know what? It's better to give a part two than to skip out on details or having having to shorten something. Yeah. So even though we both hate doing two-parters, especially because we are a bi-weekly podcast. Well, we like to give yeah. you the story. We exactly. We don't want you to wait. And we're actually going to do something. Instead of you having to wait two weeks for part two, you're only going to have to wait one week. So although we're a bi-weekly podcast for the next three weeks, you're going to have True Crime Couple, and that's our our holiday gift to you. Because of how much we hate part twos. <laughs> yeah, we don't want <laughs> you to have to wait half a month to hear what happens. Exactly. It's, it's intense, and I kind of leave us on a bit of a cliffhanger. So that was our little dilemma that we were <laughs> going back and forth with. Okay. So, John, are you ready to hear something crazy? Of course. When we hear stories about serial killers, it is usually the stories of the victims that fall through the cracks. More often than not, there is little information available, either from lack of investigation into who they were or out of respect for the family. And I can understand the latter wholeheartedly, but the former, there's no excuse. But this case is different. We have the stories of the victims of a serial killer out of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in the 1990s through early 2000s. And we especially have the account of his final victim, the one who got away. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. 
We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. When Terry Lemoyne took the job at Circle K Convenience Store on Lee Drive in Baton Rouge, just east of the Mississippi River, in 1994, she'd gone through enough in life to have lived two of them. Terry knew that there were dangers in her job as the night shift manager, but it was never anything she had shied away from in the past. Seven years prior, after she had made a promise to herself that she would never let a man take advantage of her again, she had killed the next one who tried to do so. Wait, she killed somebody? Yes, our... Our night manager here. Yes. So before she became the night manager manager at Circle Farms, she killed somebody. Yeah. Well, not Circle Farms. Did I say Circle that's, Farms? That's the produce Circle place K. by our house. Circle Okay. <laughs> Whatever. Circle K convenience store. Gotcha. Okay. So she killed somebody. She had killed somebody. Okay. So it is very rare that we have a victim who also committed murder. I'm guessing she, how long did she spend in prison? Well, no time. Oh. Okay. So, in 1987, she had worked at a strip club, the Key Club. Use your imagination, folks, um, about that name. Okay. There was a man who belonged to a motorcycle gang that often frequented the club, and he was getting very aggressive with another one of the dancers. So, Terry, who was also working there, uh, got in between the large man and the victim, the other dancer, because he had kind of gotten violent in the past and she didn't want it to happen again. So by the time Terry got to them, he had already hit the dancer in the face. And Terry kind of stepped in between to calm down the situation. And at that time, the dancer had already ran away, like back to the back dressing rooms. And Terry, thinking the situation was over, turned around and began to walk away. And that was when the man grabbed a pool stick and broke it over her back. Are you serious? Yeah, hard enough to break the stick in two, which is hard to do because pool sticks are, I mean, I've never broken a pool stick in anger. I was just about to say, have you tried? But they're pretty thick. (laughs) Yeah. So Terry said that when he did this, she lost it. You know, like I said before, she vowed that she wouldn't allow anyone to touch her like that again or disrespect her. So she turned around and picked up one half of the pool cue and started beating the man with it. Are you, uh, I, this is unbelievable. Okay. Yes, and she was like this tiny girl. So she used the jagged edge of the wooden stick to pierce his skin and kept just like hitting him. And he went down pretty fast, most likely because he probably wasn't expecting that to take place. Um, Terry was definitely at least half of his size. So patrons at the bar were basically minding their own business. They didn't want to break it up because, like, that's just the name of the game at a strip club, right? Like, I'm not paying attention to anything else that's happening. Oh, yeah. Also, back in, like, 1987, they probably, you know, it's like that cliche movie where, like, bar fights happen and everyone goes, they look at it and they go, okay, anyway, next, you know, next round. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, and that's exactly what I realized. Like, everyone likes to watch a good bar fight anyway, so they're not breaking this up, especially when, like, a little girl's beating up this big biker guy who's known to be... A, a bit of an asshole in the establishment. Okay. So nobody's doing anything. But then, but like Terry is hitting him with the pool cue. So he's bleeding all over the place. And then the dancer comes back out and she has a knife in her hands. 
So as Terry's beating this guy and he's on the ground profusely bleeding, she starts stabbing him. Oh, shit. So everything in the bar goes silent as, like, the realization dawned on those in the room that a man had just been murdered in front of them. That actually is insane to me. But I could see, like I said, like, if if any place would be, (laughs) like, it would happen and no one would care. It'd be the key club. Exactly. In Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Can I just say something? I, I don't know what it is. I this this is my opinion, but I feel like anybody named Terry or if it's Teresa and it's Terry for short, I know for a fact they they are all tough cookies. Yeah, you're a and firecracker. You, and you do not fuck with That's Terry's. Terry. Yeah, <laughs> you ju- just don't do it. And no. every Terry that I've ever known, you don't mess with them. You just right. don't do it. I agree. So someone called the police as Terry kind of slowly backs away from the man. She's out of breath. The dancer drops the knife and begins sobbing. And when the police show up that night, they actually arrest all of the girls at the bar because nobody's going to say who did it. Right. They, I mean, they have to bring everybody They in. have to bring everyone in because they're not saying who did it. It is clear who did it because they have blood all over them. Um, and as they put Terry and the other woman in the car, the police go, thanks, girls. Get out of here. No, I'm not kidding. Well, it's 1987. Yeah, but world. still... <laughs> That's not good. Well, this guy has a very, very long rap sheet. He was not a good person. So they they also knew he was a bad man. And the women spent the night in the East Baton Rouge Parish prison. That was a tongue twister. And they were all eventually released and told to find new professions. It's a good idea. It was deemed self-defense. I mean... Yeah, I mean, I mean, to a point. I mean, I'm sure. Listen, if he's a frequent guy that visits the frequent key club, flyer. the key room, key club, whatever it's called, I'm sure he's done this to other women, whether it be dancers or other women in there. We come on, you know it. You know, I'm sure there's a woman behind the bar that gets treated like crap. I'm sure. Yeah. So like, uh, you know, he's handsy. So I mean, I you know, if you keep messing around, you're gonna find out what happens eventually. Yeah. I mean, it didn't seem like they had a lot of security there because the fight wasn't broken up. So it yeah. seemed like the girls had to take care of themselves, and that's kind of what happened here. I mean, it it was murder, but tough cookie Terry. Very interesting, and dancer number two. That's true. So Terry took the advice that law enforcement gave her to heart. She quit her job at the club, and shortly thereafter, she met a man, Mazan. He was Palestinian, and he introduced her to Middle Eastern culture, something that she totally immersed herself in. She dressed in the traditional Muslim clothing and lived in Palestine and Jordan with her husband until they returned to Baton Rouge in 1992. There, she became president of the American Palestinian Arab Corporation. Although she loved the culture, she could not say the same about the relationship with her husband. Now, it's important to know that before Terry worked at the Key Club, she actually was married and had children. But when she felt like she couldn't handle the pressures of her life, and because her husband had left once they had the kids... She left her children with her parents, and then she moved to Baton Rouge, started working at the Key Club. So she already had children that were living with her parents, and now she has returned to the United States, and she's kind of like 
fully immersed herself within um, the new culture of her new husband. I wonder how that family relationship slash dynamic is with that. Very complicated. Yeah, I would think so. She actually doesn't speak to them. Okay. So, and that's something that really bothers her. And that's why I think she's thrown herself into this new identity. So over the years, she felt like Mizan had changed. After one day where he punched her, now like you said, it is accurate, um, she cut his arm with a nearby, nearby meat cleaver and like sliced his arm open when he punched her in the face. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And she said, you're never going to do that again. And she asked for a divorce. Once the couple separated, Terry was able to reflect on her life during her time with her ex-husband. She had dedicated herself to him, his culture, and religion over the past five years. And in the process of doing that, she had lost herself. So it was going to be hard for her to reestablish her life and her place in society, but she was going to do it. And that's why the night shift at the Circle K didn't bother her too much. In her mind, she'd been through it all before. Nobody could do anything to her because she'd kind of taken it all and she'd always stood up for and defended herself. And she was a strong woman. So while most would say that it wasn't the best place, especially for a woman to be working because you're working the night shift, you're all alone And the store isn't necessarily in the best neighborhood, that it could be really dangerous. And it was. Terry was robbed at gunpoint seven times during her span of work at the Circle K. I mean, that's actually crazy. But you're right. I mean, it is in a bad area. And her thought process was like, I'm not going to scare so easily. I really need this job because I need to reestablish myself. Her goal was to maybe start talking to her children again. She was just at a a new stage in her life, and she wasn't going to back down. So she was staying working at the Circle K. She had no choice. Yeah, and I think you know it's weird, but I think um, when you're doing the night shift, it's it's there is a nice part about it. I think, in my opinion, it's very calm. It's peaceful. You know, I mean, you're by yourself, maybe, or maybe there's another person there, but it's kind of low key. You know, and I feel like when you're trying to reinvent yourself, when you're coming out of, you know, a few different situations or relationships that you're not comfortable with, you know, it's it's a good way to just kind of like cement yourself a new start. So I don't know. There's just something good about it. You know, the peace of it all. It's so interesting that you say that because the like self-reflective solitude, she said, is one of the reprieves of working the night shift because she said the quiet time was from three to six. And that was when. She was able to kind of just be at peace, do what she needed to do, and it was calm, and she liked yeah. it. I mean, that's how I always felt. You know, like I, I always worked better alone in my industry. You know, when I used to work construction, you know, yeah. I used to, I used to love it because it was there was no stress at all, so I could relate. Yes, and another reprieve that she said from working the night shift was that the residents of and across the street there was this upscale retirement home. And right before, like, it would, when she first got in, all the residents of the retirement home would come and, like, buy little things for themselves. And she always thought it was, they were so cute. And she had funny relationships with them. And in addition to that, she found herself lucky because when the nurses or employees at the 
facility because it was a huge facility would change their shifts they would come in and see her so she knew that it wasn't always going to be you know like people that were drunk or on drugs coming in she knew she would have some good customers that she saw all the time like repeat customers and she was she liked that yeah i mean that always makes the job easier you know when you know you could have some really uh engaging conversations with people right And the community that I'm talking about sat on 52 acres of land and had once been the Du Plantier Plantation, where cotton and sugarcane was grown. The main building on the property, a pristine white Greek revival mansion, had once been the home of a wealthy family. The adjoining structures that were originally there had housed the slaves that they owned. Their given names reported as Abraham, Isaac, Jean-Baptiste, Hercules, and Samson. Where once unspeakable acts of violence occurred, now the elderly strolled with their families when they came to visit and sipped tea outside. Pretty crazy juxtaposition. It is. It's a little eerie, though. Like, I know that if I was a retiree, I wouldn't want to be there. Yeah. Like, because even though it might look beautiful on the outside or, the you know, the facade of it, obviously there's a lot of past trauma and right. a lot of things that have taken place there. So I don't know how much of a good feeling that would be for me to like live out the rest of my life there. Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> you think know? you it would be really difficult to find any place that wasn't touched by the True. violence of that in the South, especially in Louisiana, where there was a lot of sugarcane plantations and cotton. And the plantation that we're talking about was very, very large. I think it was somewhere around 900 acres, and this is just 52 acres of a piece of the property. So, like I said before, I think it's just really hard in the South to find a place that wasn't touched by violence. Or in a complete flood zone because you're in Louisiana. (laughs) Yes, yes. One or the other, sometimes both. And... This will make you maybe feel better. I'm not trying to sell you on this place, but the actual structure that was built to house the residents was built on the property in 1983. I think you're trying to sell me. Are I'm you not. trying to sell me? <laughs> Are you trying to get rid of me? I'm just saying the actual like living facilities was mm-hmm. built later on. But well, yes, the the land is sour, as Stephen King would say. The land as much of the Deep South is, is beautiful in a slightly haunting way. And because of the beauty of the facility and all that they had to offer, like activities and trips, it was a place a lot of the elderly wanted to live in. This was a very upscale retirement community. It cost a lot of money to get in. And once you did get in, you, all, you had high monthly fees to pay. So, I mean, I'm guessing there was, like, security and all that other stuff oh, there? Oh, I'll, I'll get into that. Okay. Because I would want some security, you know, since I'm old. Security was yeah. promised to the residents. Okay. So it was a way for the elderly to stay active and meet new people while also being close to family. The children or family members of the residents felt assured knowing that their loved ones were cared for around the clock and also enjoyed themselves in some semblance of freedom and dignity and that's kind of what saint james place offered and that was the name of the community so today saint james place is very secure raw iron gates surrounding the entire estate there's a guard station located at the front entry so it's you can't get in or out without the guard checking you in there's a state-of-the-art 
surveillance system, and there are many locking protocols throughout the facility. Now, although this is comforting, it is a reminder of the time that blood had once again been spilled on the land of the former plantation when a resident was murdered within the facility. No, it's supposed to be secure. It's someone's relative. (laughs) Well, back in the early 90s when it first was there, there was no gates. There was no fence. So anyone could get in and out of the property. There was no such thing as like being checked in. Okay. And there was only one security guard for the multiple buildings that they had on the 52 acres. You know, you would think, I mean, I hate to be this guy, but you would think that a, a place like this would have, since it's upscale, I'm using air quotes, that yeah. you would have the money um, to put on a staff for more security. Well, you would think so. And that's why when this does take place, there's a bit of an uproar because that was one of the selling points to a lot of the residents was how safe this was supposed to be. Well, we quickly found out, I guess, that it's not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, and if you th- so the Circle K convenience store where Terry works is across the street. This woman has been robbed at gunpoint seven times. It's definitely not a safe area. And if you have no gates, what's to say? Violence isn't going to go through there. Just because the building's nice doesn't mean someone's not going to come in. Yeah, just slip right through. It's actually more enticing. Yeah, actually, yeah, you're right. All right, so... Anne Bryan had been born in 1911. She was very intelligent, graduating from her high school not only early at the age of 16, but as the salutatorian, which is the second. So if anyone doesn't know, like the valedictorian's the first in their class, salutatorian second. She went on to attend Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, and that had been hard for her. Anne was only 16 and away from home. She missed her house and her family. And it was hard for her to get on with the students around her because they were older than she was. So they kind of didn't want to include her in too much because this is like a 16-year-old around them and they're all 19, 20. It's very different. Yeah, it must be weird. But that's crazy that she finished so early. Yeah, she was really smart. Wow. So one day, the dean of women, wild that that was even a job, (laughs) saw Anne crying and tried to comfort her. Feeling like an interaction with one of her peers would best cheer her up, she called over a student that she knew well, William Bryan. William was sweet to her and tried to cheer her up while he was walking her back to her dorm. Anne said that that night when she got back home to her dorm, she cried even harder because not only did she miss her family, but she knew that the handsome, kind boy that she had just met would never want to be with her. Not only was she a lot younger, but Anne was born without her right hand. And she thought that because of this, no one would ever pick her over other girls. I like, so I like this woman because I feel like she's had a lot, uh, you know, maybe, you know, having that disability of not having a hand. You would think that you know a lot of people would give up or, or feel bad for themselves, but this woman seems like she's pushed through a lot in her life yes. in, in a short amount of time. I like it. Yes, I know. But Anne, for the first time, was wrong. The next morning when she left her dorm room and was headed to her classes, there was William waiting for her. Adorable. How freaking cute. <laughs> William didn't see what Anne did. He saw a dark-haired, beautiful girl 
who just about broke his heart when she was crying. So he decided that he was going to make her smile. And he asked her if she wanted to go to the movies to see Ben-Hur. And she agreed. The couple married two years later in 1929. In 1930, they had their first child, William Jr., and later two more children, a boy and a girl, George and Rachel. Anne stayed home with the children while William worked as an engineer at the Louisiana Department of Transportation. Unfortunately, when their youngest child was only nine years old, William suffered from a stroke. And for the next 13 years, Anne was her husband's caregiver. And it was a shame that his life and their life together was cut short. But like she always did, Anne did her best to go on in life. She threw herself into her children's lives and activities. Um, she helped them. And she also picked up hobbies like painting and playing the piano and playing board games and cards with her friends. And her children loved and respected her so much for both her strength and her kindness. Anne and her family never saw the fact that she did not have a hand as a disability. Rather, her children would lovingly tease her. What's wrong, Mom? You act like you don't have a hand. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> and she would laugh. But in 1990, this made the fall that she suffered all the more devastating. Anne, at 79 years old, had fallen and broken her left shoulder, which left her unable to use her left arm or hand. Now, although this was just temporary, but she would have to go through a lot of rehab to get um, everything back to the way it was, but it just showed that as she was getting older, she was a lot more vulnerable. So they decided that it was best if for that time period, because she was left incapable of taking care of herself, um, that she should go and move into St. James Place. Smart move, you know. Yeah. Sucks to be out of your home, but... I mean, if it's to take care of her, I mean, that's great. Well, it was also good, too, because then she was around a lot of other people. She really enjoyed St. James Place. She had a great group of friends that she always got together and played games and cards with. And Anne said that she never felt rich, but she felt rich living at St. James Place because it was like such this like this beautiful facility and it was expensive to be there. And of course, you know, being at retirement age and her her kids were saying, like, mom, spend the money that you have to enjoy yourself and live out the rest of your life happy and peaceful because you always took care of everybody else. So it was nice for her to be spending time there. That is nice. Also, side note, every time you keep saying St. James Place, I just keep thinking that is my go-to property when I play Monopoly. I know, I know. <laughs> That's I, my I go-to strip. Too. That is my go-to strategy yeah. when, when we play. You know, I have to make sure I grab St. James Place. You become a slumlord. I, I do. Yeah. Um, and another benefit is the fact that there's nurses there 24 hours a day. So the family felt comfortable and they felt like their mom was going to be all right as long as you know, she had around-the-clock care. And I think that is something that puts your mind at ease. And they were sold that the security was really good. So back when there were no fences around the 52-acre property and there was just one security guard to watch over all of it, it was common for people to come and go through the facility, a very lax security model. And all that lived there felt comfortable enough to keep their doors unlocked. 
It was also apartment-style living, so the nurses or staff didn't necessarily have a key to everyone's home. So in some cases, the residents left their doors open so the staff could come and check on them throughout the night or get in if there was an issue. You have to think if somebody falls, they can't get up and get the door. Exactly. Or some of the um, people who are more elderly, it took them a really long time to get to the door. So they would just always leave it unlocked so other residents could come in and not have to wait for them to get up and get to the door. Also, I'm thinking for the ones where it's not about, you know, falling and you can't get to the door, you also have to think all these elderly people that are there who are in retirement, they are probably from that old school mentality where it's okay. We could leave everything open. No one's coming to hurt us. Yes. So that also plays a role in it, I think, as well. Totally. And that was the case with Anne Bryan. Oftentimes, night nurses would come in and check on her. And Anne actually told her children that she felt safer with the door open because if anything happened to her, the nurse nurses would be able to get in quickly and help her. Um, they did, even the people at the facility, though, did tell the residents, you really should be locking your doors. But still, like you said, it was kind of a part of their mentality just not to. And Anne thought it was polite to leave her door unlocked. Because she's a sweetheart angel. Right. Right. And she wanted people to not have to be inconvenienced by waiting for her to get up. Because as she was getting older, it was becoming more difficult for her to get to the door quickly. On the night of March 20th, 1994... Anne was not feeling well. A few days before, she had been going to the mall with her daughter, and while they were driving, her daughter had to stop quickly on her brakes, and Anne kind of got thrust forward, and in that happening, she broke a few ribs. Oh, no. I know. So she was in a lot of pain. Uh, So much pain, actually, that she canceled playing bridge with her friends that day. That's a big deal. I know. It is. She was a part of the non-daters club at St. James Place. So <laughs> at um, elderly facilities, there is always two groups, uh, the people that are in the dating pool and the people that are not. That is too funny. <laughs> There's been so many, like, plays on that, you know, how, like, you know, all, you know, all these different skits. But yeah. it's true, though, that from what I hear, that's that's a real thing. Yeah. They, so the non-daters always really hung out together because – they wanted to spend them time, their time like enjoying themselves with their friends, not necessarily chasing uh, old, old men. Yeah, <laughs> chasing tail. Yeah. So she would always play bridge with her friends or Scrabble. She was like the Scrabble queen. And that night, she felt like she it was just too much to get up. So she was in a lot of pain, and she left her front door open because. She knew that the nurses were going to come check on her because she was due pain medication in the morning and she was going to sleep in. Because she was in so much pain, it was hard for her to sleep. So she didn't head to bed until around 3 a.m. Wow. So she knew the nurses would come in around 8 to give her medicine and most likely because she was going to bed at 3 a.m., she would be sleeping still. So that's why she left the door open. And just as she was about to fall asleep, she heard someone enter her apartment. She thought that it must be the night nurse coming to check on her. But through the darkness that spilled out past her open bedroom door, she saw a large looming figure headed slowly towards her. He climbed on top of her, and she screamed as loudly as she could. 
He ripped at her underwear, and she screamed again. At this point, she knew that he was holding a knife. He had held it up in front of her face. Anne kept screaming for as loud as she could and as long as she could. But unfortunately, the walls of the apartment buildings were thick, made so sound couldn't be heard through, and no one could hear her scream. But the intruder didn't know this and didn't want to take a chance. He had intended to rape her and then kill her, but he knew he had to kill her immediately or someone was going to hear her screams. So with a tremendous swipe of the blade, fueled by the frustration of his foiled plan, he sliced into the fragile skin on Anne's neck. He cut so deep that he had practically decapitated her. But his rage and desire had not yet been satiated. He continued to stab and slash at Anne's body. He knew that she was dead, but he was not through. He stabbed and cut her until her intestines and bowels protruded from her body. He cut at her right breast until it was only attached by skin. He mutilated her genitals and her face. In total, after his frenzy, Anne Bryan had 47 stab wounds on her body. That is insane. Like, what? You gotta be kidding me, right? It's very violent. Like, after hearing her story, I I always feel like when you put the human element to something... Because, listen, I'll be honest. We do so many things with this podcast that, you know, I don't want to say it makes me numb to it, but it's almost like, okay, I expect it. People are desensitized sometimes. But when you give... When you put that human element and you tell somebody a story like you just did for me, this makes me, like, so outraged because this poor woman was, like, almost in her 80s. She was. She was 81, Uh, about to turn 82. Like, what what kind of monster are you to do this to an 80-year-old woman? I, I mean, honestly... I think that's the only word you could really yeah. use for that. I'm going to I'm going to tell you though right now that there there this guy this is not his first time doing this. It can't be. This guy you don't just do that. This is his first time murdering someone. Really? Yeah. Wow, because that 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 is really insane. That yes. is a lot of ferocity. That is a, that is like insane amount of stabbing. He had and- been planning for a long time. Okay, so we're dealing with somebody extremely sick. Yeah. Okay. So he had attacked her on the bed, and that's where a majority of the blood was um, soaked into her pink bed sheets. And as he got up, her body fell to the floor with one leg kind of still up on the bed, and that's how she would later be found. He then left. Just after 8 a.m., Anne was found in her room by a nurse that was bringing her her medication that morning. Because, now this is another outrageous thing. Okay. Because the facility did not want to alert the media as to what happened, because it would be bad for business, they called it in as a death rather than a homicide. And if it would have been called in as a homicide, crime scene techs, homicide detectives, police, they would have rushed to the scene. You got to be kidding. So... They thought it was a non-emergency. I mean, as you can imagine, unfortunately, at these facilities, they might have a lot. They have a lot of deaths that occur because people are the elderly live there. So it took one hour for the police to get there. Jeez. Okay, I get 
right? It's bad for publicity in this upscale community. And we should have known that from the start because to have one security guard for the whole building, yeah. you know whose pockets are being lined here, okay? Because that's where the money's going. It's not going to the actual facility where it needs to be. So that's the first problem. The second issue here is you're right, like now no evidence could really be collected that would, you know, maybe help. I mean, you probably still can, but like to wait that long, I feel is bad. How many people have walked in and out of there now? I'm right. sure. Also, I also like I get like you don't want to spook the uh, the other elderly people in the home, but I mean you have to do the right thing here. You have to call them and let them know that this is a homicide. Right. There's a guy in the loose that just killed somebody in our place. Right, because think about it. The people that come to the scene, they think it's just a death that has occurred, right? So they bring an ambulance and one police officer because they think they're just collecting a body that died of natural causes. But then when they see the scene, they're like, holy crap, we have to call everybody in. Yeah, this is actually a massive injustice for this family. I'm just going to tell you right now. The The fact that they let this happen and then didn't report it the right way, too. That's that's ridiculous. The family does so. Okay. Well, yeah. that's, and they win. that's good. We'll talk about it later. Okay. But um, it is it is very sad. And once the police and the first responders get there and they see that this is actually, in fact, a homicide, that's when the homicide detectives are called and the crime scene techs are called in. No. Yeah. No, obviously. This is, could, this is nuts that this took place in this facility. Oh, yeah. Like, like, I know, obviously, that this murderer just did the most egregious thing I think you could do to a human a human being. But I also just think it's it's crazy, too, how a facility like this let it happen. Like, you know, pretty much made They it, were negligent. Right. Made it possible that this could happen. I agree with you. Crazy. I feel like after that, we need a little bit of a palate cleanser. I agree with you. Um, so we're going to take a break here <laughs> and talk to you about our first sponsor of the show, Skylight Frames. We have endlessly struggled to find a gift for John's dad. Men are always hard to shop for. But finally, we've found the perfect one. We live a good distance away from him, a far drive down the Long Island Expressway. So not only is Skylight Frames something that will look beautiful in his home, but it's also a way for us to stay connected. And it is the most meaningful gift we have ever given. John's dad, also named John, fun fact, loves that he can see pictures pop up whenever we send them to him in the app. We have sent nice pictures of us together and John definitely sends some joke ones over too. We've gotten so many phone calls from him laughing and telling us how much he loves it. For a really special gift for special people in your life, you've got to check out Skylight Frames. It is a photo frame that you can update instantly by email from anywhere. It sets up effortlessly in under 60 seconds. Just plug in and use the touchscreen to connect your wireless network and enjoy. Sending photos to Skylight is effortless. Everyone in the family can use the app or just email them in, and they'll pop up in seconds. Multiple people can send photos to the frame, so it's a great way to keep a large network of friends and family in touch. It has a black frame and a white mat, so it can look really nice in your home. Choose from two size options, either the original 10 or the new large 15-inch frame. 100% satisfaction guaranteed. If you don't love your skylight, they'll offer you a full refund. You can preload it with photos of special memories for the perfect personalized gift. 
import pictures of you and your significant other, spouse, grandparent that they didn't even know you had. Now it's a special offer. You can get $15 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame when you go to skylightframe.com and enter code COUPLE. That's right. You get $15 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame. Just go to skylightframe.com and enter code COUPLE. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E dot com, promo code COUPLE. Okay, let's get back to the show. All right, so where we left off, it was um, the homicide detectives getting to the scene of the horrific murder of the lovely Anne Bryan. It was hard to get through. That was hard. So I bet you could see over 1,000 homicides, and the crime scene of Anne Bryan would still bring you to your knees, and it almost did. Detectives and crime scene technicians combed the scene for clues that would answer that question. They sprayed the carpet with luminol, and they were able to find the impressions of a large knife. It was determined that it was a lock blade, a lock blade style buck knife. And they also found two boot prints adjacent to where her body had been found. But other than that, there was a lack of physical evidence at the scene something that reflected a planning or criminal sophistication. There were no forced signs of entry, but it was determined that her attacker had gained entry from a sliding glass door that had also been left unlocked. But there was no hair or fingerprints anywhere in the apartment that didn't belong to Anne or her children or others in the nursing home. That's interesting. Now, there were cameras situated throughout the campus of St. James Place, and in theory, they should have captured the intruder at some point. But he had been smart. It seemed like he knew where the cameras were, and he avoided them so he wouldn't be detected. Yeah, I was just going to think that. Could he have canvassed this place earlier? It would have been easy for him to, because anyone could get in. I mean, like maybe not even going in fully, but just looking at a small area where... If he was leaving through, he could avoid them. Yeah. Or could it be somebody that works there, a janitor or something like that as well? Maybe. Also, I what I would try to do is, I, I mean, this is a far stretch, I know, but obviously this is where my brain goes. Go for it. The knife that he used to commit this heinous act. We know you're the knife king. Right. Well, not, not, not knife king. <laughs> oh, my God, stop. No, but I would just say, okay, well. People are terrified about your knowledge of knives. Okay, well, I'm sorry. But, like. <laughs> 1994, obviously there's no online sales yet, so that means that most likely he bought this knife somewhere local. So I would go to all the shops or places that sell that specific knife and look to see if it was bought. I would say that would be hard to do because hunting is a big thing in Louisiana, and if that's like a lock-style buck knife, I'm sure many people have. I think that's really common, right? I I mean, yeah, I, I guess so, but I, I'm just saying, like, if you're doing that kind of style uh, with that knife, it would be a fixed blade, not necessarily a like a like a oh, flip lock. True. Like, at least that's what I'm getting from you. It's one of those like flip it out and then it locks. Yeah. Compared to like a fixed blade out of a sheath. Yeah, because the way that the impression was was that the knife was sl- slightly closed a little, like it wasn't straight locked. It was. Yeah. Folded slightly, meaning mm. that it would have been the lock style. 
I'm just saying, if you're going to go hunt, you want a fixed blade with a sheath. Well, not... especially if you're, you know. Just saying. Doing what, what you do to deer right. after you. So, I don't know. I, I'm Sorry, just guys. thinking it's possible that you might be able to find, uh, like, if they realize, you know, let's say, you know, you walk to a store and, hey, did you sell this knife? How many did you sell? Did you see anybody weird or suspicious? Like, I don't know. You could do it's something really like that. It's really the only clue they have, That's essentially, all you do. at this yeah. point. They felt like the fact that the person who had committed this crime had thought it out. He was intelligent and he was violent. And that made the case all the more unnerving because those are two dangerous qualities to have together. The detectives working the case wanted to know if maybe anyone had seen anything. So they asked the residents if they saw or heard anything, but they had not. And neither had the staff. They asked the other businesses on Lee Drive if they had seen anyone suspicious between 2 and 5 in the morning on March 21st. And that was why they actually questioned Terry Lemoyne about the murder of Anne Bryan. Okay. Which is crazy. Um, because she had been working the night shift at the Circle K across the street. So had this person stopped in before? Had she seen someone around that was, you know, looking suspicious? And Terry told the detectives that she hadn't seen anything that night. And that was her slow time. So she really would have noticed if someone was in the store or being odd because there was no crowd for them to fall into. It would have been pretty obvious. The detectives spoke to a lot of people but received no answers. And what did happen as a result of them speaking to everybody was the spreading of fear throughout the community. Because now everyone knew exactly what happened. You know, before you continue, I'm just thinking now. You did give me a hint and said that this was his first kill. Yeah. Which you rarely give me hints. So I'm thinking right now, okay, is this a crime of opportunity or is this a crime where he planned it because he knew that it would be easy on an elderly person and she just happened to be the person that he chose but right. the plan was to go after someone old well it it does make sense that if someone has these intentions to kill a human being that their first attempt would be someone who would not fight back as much and we right. see that happen often that um, victimology changes when confidence is gained. Yeah. Well, the, that's just the process I'm going at. Yeah. It, it's just... No, it's exactly what happened. That's what it definitely seems like. Yeah. So because they were unable to get anywhere with the evidence or witnesses, detectives figured that they would try to gain insight as to what kind of person would have done this. The forensic psychologist said that this killer was most likely a male and a loner. He was raised by a single parent, most likely a mother, based on the rage and overkill. He had an obsession or a collection of knives. He was a meticulous person, and this was not a one-time event. This killer would be back. He would kill again. And that was the fact that made it all the more troubling. That Anne's case wasn't getting solved, and months would pass. No new information came in or was collected. All of the leads were beginning to run dry and nothing new was coming in. Anne's children did get a settlement from St. James Place, 
because of the inadequate security they provided. It was found out during the civil trial that the one security guard that had to look over all 52 acres, they also made him collect all of the garbage from all around the facilities. So most of his time at night was spent emptying the garbage, taking the garbage out, and he couldn't do his security job. That is absolutely ridiculous, and that is what you call cutting corners. Yeah. So I'm good. I mean, I, I can't believe this happened, but I'm glad they got a settlement because it, it's and not really— And brought attention to yeah. this. I mean, it's not justice, at least not yet anyway, but it's just to, you know— Yeah, and right after this happened to Anne is when they beefed up the security. Well, good. So let's flash forward about a year, because that's when the next lead comes in, and detectives are still working the murder of Anne Bryan. A witness came forward and said that they heard a man named Walter Jacoby discussing the murder. The witness had details about the case that were never released, as well as where the wounds were and what murder weapon was used. Jacoby had said to the witness that the killer probably killed her with a buck knife and threw it in the lakes at LSU. Okay, that's weird detail, but okay. Yes. And in addition to the specific details, the detectives found out with a simple background check that Jacoby's mother was a nurse at St. James Place. Okay, so we see that he might have knowledge because someone that he knows works there. Mm -hmm. Okay, maybe. So first, the detectives want to speak to Jacoby's mother and the other nurses at the facility. From them, they were able to learn that Jacoby's mother was actually quite close to Anne Bryan, and she had taken the murders pretty hard. She often spoke to her son about her patients, and Anne had been her favorite. In fact, when Jacoby went to visit his mother, where she worked, which he did frequently, he went into Anne's apartment several times and had met her, even more than that, outside. Is she a single mother? Because that would fit the profile. We don't know that information yet. Okay. Because that would be good. That would be good. That would fit that profile a little bit more. I would say, the between the dynamics between mother and son, I would say that, yes, there, there definitely is a dependent dynamic between the two of them. Okay. And because he was there a lot, he knew the facilities well. And he also knew where the cameras would be. So detectives then went to speak to known associates of Jacoby. And they said that he was not a fan of Anne. And, or any of his mother's patients, for that matter, because the 31-year-old, and I repeat, the 31-year-old, believed that they took up too much of his mother's time so she couldn't focus on him. Do I, do I sense motive? You're taking time away from me and my mom. Like, you know, like, okay, dude, you're 31. Come on now, dude. So one of his friends even heard him say once that he wished the old lady was dead, were his exact words. What the hell? What did she do to you? God. (laughs) So this was all looking very promising. They brought in Walter Jacoby for questioning. They asked him if he owned any knives, and he told them that he did. In fact, his father had given them to him. So, dad in the picture. Okay. When asked about a buck knife, he said he had one, but he threw it into the lakes at LSU. Now, this was interesting because in the statement to the witness, he predicted that the killer used a buck knife and threw it into the lakes at LSU. And now he's telling detectives that's exactly what he did. Do you think he's just doing this for attention of some sort? Because 
I, I don't think that you would do You would not say to police, hey, by the way, I told a story that I threw a knife. Well, he doesn't oh, know about the you know, witness coming forward. I understand. But, like, would you really do that to yourself while being questioned, though, as well? I don't know. Unless you're out of your mind or <laughs> dumb. Well, because they wanted to kind of verify this story, right. they are going to, and this took a lot of manpower, drag the lake. To see if they could find a knife. That's insane. And let me guess, they didn't find any. They did not find anything. Okay, yeah. So the detectives believe that the real test would come with further questioning. From what they'd learned from the forensic psychologist, the person they were looking for would have enjoyed what they did. They would have been satisfied with the murder and maybe even sexually aroused. So they wanted to see if that was the case with Jacoby. So they brought in crime scene photos into the interrogation room and they showed them to him and he kind of went a little nuts he starts shaking uncontrollably he won't look at them and he seems horrified disgusted not aroused wanting to look at them more and stuff and he said i never hurt anybody so the detectives had no true reason to hold walter jacoby and based on his reaction They really didn't think that he had done this. They thought he was just jealous, kind of callous. That's why he made those comments to his friends or he wanted to seem cool because he was kind of like, you know, he's a 31-year-old who really wants the attention of his mother. It's He was just a weird kind of guy. He's a bizarre guy. But not a murderer. Right. And after that, the case officially went cold. That was the only yeah. thing they had. That's really so sad. So it's really sad that there was no answers for the family. But as the case of Anne Bryan went cold, the same could not be said for Terry. Terry's life had actually begun to turn around for the better. She would always remember the day after the murder of Anne Bryan. Not only had she been horrified to hear what happened just across the street while she was alone in a store, but it was the day that she met her new boyfriend. Her friend had set them up and literally brought him into the store to meet her, and the two really hit it off. He was sweet, and he was good to her, a far cry from everything she'd experienced before. So the two dated for, like, four years, and after about four years of the couple dating, they moved in together. But Terry's newfound happiness would not last for long because the forensic psychologist had been right. The man who murdered Anne was on the hunt to kill again just a few months later. But this is crazy because that's a long waiting period. Five years. Yeah, but you got to remember, though, too. I mean, this this is just what we I, – I mean, I could be wrong, but this is what we know. We don't know what he's doing behind closed doors. We don't know if he's, like, getting off on torturing animals or what is, whatever he's doing in the in the interim. There might be something that could be anything making him not need to act. Right. Or he's planning like, really like intensely. Right. Like when BTK had his long break, it was because he was like the animal control and he was killing animals. Right. That's what I'm like, saying. There's something yeah. that he's doing that's making him not need to kill again. Correct. And then you got to think the planning because th- this that took place, this first murder, I mean, it still took planning. And don't forget, he was not happy with what took place because that hadn't been the plan. His plan was to to rape Anne. Right. And she defended herself. 
and he was terrified that people would hear the screaming. So he was angry. He was very angry with the way that went. So I'm assuming he went back into his planning phases. So downtown Baton Rouge, on the east side of Interstate Route 110, back in the 1990s, was not a place you wanted to be at night, unless you were looking for drugs or sex workers. The Baton Rouge Police Department spent a lot of time in undercover missions trying to stop the drug and sex trafficking that occurred in their city, but it seemed like an endless endeavor, and as soon as they arrested the people that they found to be guilty, they would just be released back on the street because they made bail. Those who walked the streets were seen as a problem, best ignored, much like those who frequented the richer downtown area located on the other side of the interstate did. And society felt the same way. If a sex worker is murdered, it is a non-issue, a problem resolved in the eyes of some. In the 1990s, some police departments of major U.S. cities would mark the files of murdered sex workers as NP, non-persons. We've come <laughs> very far. Well, kind of. Well, yeah, yeah I guess you're right. Well, I, still, I still think we've come far. I mean, yes, there's always room for improvement and, and how to handle things the proper way. Yes. But, I mean, I mean, from then to now... It's a there's a big difference. You know, there's there's always two sides of of it, and I think that these cases are no longer labeled NP, but it becomes difficult when people aren't reported missing, and that's why killers or serial killers find it easy to make sex workers victims because they don't necessarily always have someone who will report them missing. Well, I I find that weirdly ironic because the police you know label them as MPs and in the mind of a serial killer they might be considering them NPs as well right you know because that's what they're going after they don't you know yeah right it's the mindset of they're not people to both right. of them yes yeah. really sad the clearance rate of crimes involving sex workers was in the teens in almost all major cities and down to the single digits if you looked at the statistics for women of color, even less than a non-person. And this was very much true in Louisiana at the time when you step back and take a look at the serial killers that preyed on sex workers in Louisiana, particularly black sex workers in the state, both male and female, you'd be shocked. It's just wild. Like, active serial killers in Louisiana that preyed on sex workers... There's a lot. Really? Yes. Um, and we're going to do other cases on them. There's one in particular that I would want to cover. It's it's very sad, but nobody cared. Right. So they kept doing it. And it was the men and women who lived in this world that needed to have their own backs. They, they had to be careful and they had to build up their ability to read people because they have to determine, is it safe for me to get into a car with this person? And that was what they relied on. Which is not good because if you're trying to get somebody to get in your car to kill them, they, they fake their emotion. They fake, you know, when you're dealing with someone who's, a little unhinged like that, what you see is just being put on as a show to you. Exactly. It's not, you know, it's hard to read someone who Especially if it's someone who's not unassuming. Right. 30-year-old Catherine Hall thought that she had been good at that 
and that she was able to tell if a person was safe. But sometimes a monster can hide pretty well. Catherine lived in the housing projects on North Street. She had been battling with addiction for years. Now she spent most nights walking up and down the streets of downtown Baton Rouge, working as a sex worker to help afford her addiction, the addiction that had taken over her life. According to police records, Catherine had only been arrested once, back in 1995, for possession of cocaine. Since then, she had avoided police detection. For the most part, Catherine did feel safe on the streets. She felt as if she knew the people that she was walking with and were walking around her. She knew the men who drove by, she knew who was safe, and she knew who wasn't. But on the night of January 4th, 1999, she did not know that the man that had killed Anne Bryan was getting bored. He needed to feel again like he did on the night that he murdered the 81-year-old woman. Anne had been easy to overpower, and he was looking for someone who would be again. Catherine was tiny and very thin, a small woman who only ate what she could buy with her food stamps because she used most of the money she earned on drugs. When a man drove by holding a $20 bill out of the window, she looked into the car. She saw a harmless man. He was smiling and seemed almost a little nerdy. She got into the car and the two drove towards River Road. He stopped at a deserted property and parked. On the short drive to the location, the man requested that she give him oral sex. Catherine agreed, and while she was seated in the passenger seat, she leaned over the man who did not get out of the driver's seat. The man pulled out a nylon zip tie and positioned it underneath her neck without her knowing. He connected the two ends and pulled tight, strangling her. He must have expected her to just struggle to breathe, but that wasn't what happened. He didn't pull it tight enough, and Catherine Hall was a fighter. She struggled for her life, grasping at the passenger door looking for the handle, as she was gasping for breath. She found it. She pulled it and jumped out of the car. She screamed as she ran through the abandoned field, but there was no one around to hear her screams. The man had chosen this location for that purpose. He caught up to her quickly and knocked her to the ground. He had his knife on him now, and he desperately wanted her to be quiet. Again, this didn't go as he planned. He was not happy. He flew into a rage and began to punch and stab Catherine. She fought back as hard as she could, but the emaciated woman was no match for the now furious man on top of her. Like he did with Anne, the man stabbed Catherine with purpose, hitting her in places he knew would either cause her the most pain or mutilate her. The rest is going to be really rough. So I just want to prepare you (laughs) and the audience for it. Okay? Yep. He stabbed her through her left eye, her breasts, her stomach, her genitals. 16 stab wounds before he slashed her throat. The man knew she was dead and he was alone. No one ever went over there. It was something he knew because he often drove around downtown watching the sex workers and imagining what he would do to them. He knew he was safe here to do whatever he wanted. And Catherine, just as Anne had, would suffer horrific post-mortem mutilation. 
but it was clear from what he did hear that he was escalating. As Catherine lied dead in front of him, he stabbed into her arm deeply and then dragged his blade down the length of her arm to her wrist, cutting her arm open. He cut a circle around her right breast and cut open her left one. He stabbed her stomach and genitals another eight times. He removed one of her eyelids. He then turned her over, and doing the same thing he did to her arm, he stabbed into her left buttock and then dragged the knife down to her calf. Post-mortem, there were 21 wounds in total. So 37 total. I mean, this is insane, honestly. You you know, I I know this might be wrong, uh, but I feel like... He keeps mutilating the body post-mortem, and he keeps mutilating the genitals. Do you think he's getting frustrated because he wants to rape them, but he can't? I think so. Because that is something that I think is happening here so far. Also, I I, I already know. I guarantee you I already know this. They're not going to find any evidence here. Again, guaranteed. They will. Oh, damn it. All right. Well, I was going to say, okay, what I'm trying to get at here is, and I still think it applies, I think the reason why he's not being caught and and all these years are gone by, because you brought up a good point, There's you're saying there's a lot of serial killers in this area. Yeah. So it's possible that it's, it could be throwing off, and maybe in the future too, it could be throwing off investigators because they think that, oh, this matches this or this might match that. And then it doesn't. There's no connection. Is it possible there could be more than one serial killer in the area? Um, that would be really interesting to know. Yes, I think that would be interesting to know, and that's what we'll t- we'll talk about that on the second part. Yeah, I think I'm getting show. a little ahead of myself. No, these are great questions, but I think and it's I something to keep in them. mind. You know, definitely something to keep in mind. No, those are good questions. I want to answer them for you. But I think you brought up a good point about the frust- like probably the sexual frustration. Now, forensic psychologists have different, you know, opinions, viewpoints, because every person, every killer is different. Um, this may either be sexual frustration because he's unable to commit the sexual act, but I don't think that's true because as he put the zip tie around her, she was giving him oral sex at the time. Okay, I don't mean so, to get into detail, but we don't know what took place. Was he getting, you know, was he getting... He, you want me to... He was. Okay. So then... Sorry, I just threw up a little bit in my mouth. Yeah. So then um, they also say that the knife, the stab wounds could be in place... It's like in place of penetration. Okay. So there's... Yeah. It's not that he wants to necessarily rape them, but he wants to mutilate them. Like he's angry about their womanhood which is why the forensic psychologist said he might have had a single mother yeah or have anger towards his mother or women in general yeah and it's it's the anger and aggression that's okay. taking place. i mean that's fair i mean i think if anything this is multi-layered i think that it's oh very it would much be so. uh hard to say hey it's this and only this there's mm-hmm. multiple things here um, oh yeah and we'll get into all of it yeah now when he was done He gathered the clothes that he had ripped off of her body, um, leaving her leather jacket at the scene, though. And that was going to be a mistake because in the pocket of her leather jacket was her food stamp card that had her name on it. And there was blood at the scene. So he drove to this is wild, John. He drove to the splash car wash 
and he knew that there wasn't a lot of people out. It was very late at night, early morning. He washed the exterior of his car. Then he removed the body from the car, put it on the ground, and scrubbed the interior to get all the blood out. Wait. <laughs> and no one saw this. Are you telling me? Oh, it's so it's one of those do it like yourself. Self service, yes. That's even worse because you you know how many people are like right in the next like bay area. No, nobody was there because it was so like it was the middle of the night. Yeah, but that's ballsy. Yes, that's what I'm saying. That's it's ballsy. Because listen, you could be somebody like my dad who does weird things. He'll just get up and like, hey, I think I want to do this, and then he'll, he'll be at a self service car, car wash. Yeah, yeah, because my dad can't sleep or whatever. And that would be, like, the person that stumbles across this guy just dumping a body on the floor to clean the inside. Uh, yeah. That's crazy. Shout out to you, Dad. Love you. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's crazy. This poor woman. I feel really bad for these victims. Because she had to endure a lot of torture. Yeah. You know, um. Same as Anne Bryan. I, I know that you hate this reference. So okay. please just bear with me. It's just for our audience. Don't get mad. But like the 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 ferocity and the way that these bodies are being mutilated, it really does scream out to me Jack the Ripper esque. Okay. The way the bodies are left there, you know what I'm saying? Well, no, because that was done with a sophistication, and it looked like that killer had some type of medical know how. This is just a frenzied kill. I guess. I think it's just the shock value is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. The shock value of the body being found, the way it looks, Well, wait, that's we'll crazy. talk about the body being found. Okay. We'll get there because don't forget, he's taken her from the scene now. He's going to put her body somewhere, somewhere else. Somewhere else. Okay. But I think it is time for another palate cleanser. So we are going to uh, take a minute to tell you about a new podcast that we think you will find interesting. It's by our friends at The Expanded Perspectives. If you or someone you know is interested in the paranormal, lost civilizations, time slips, UFOs, ghosts, modern or ancient mysteries, and even cryptozoology, then you need to check out The Expanded Perspectives. That's you, John. You love all of that stuff. I love it. Kyle and Cam are lifelong friends and present an open-minded approach to strange and unusual events. Each and every episode, they explore a new topic with top-notch audio, well-researched information, and tantalizing first-hand accounts from surprised eyewitnesses. Kind of a new twist on old-style storytelling. Popular episodes are Nightmares at Sea, Tales of the Afterlife, Missing Hunters, My Uncle the Werewolf, Visited by Shadows. From ancient copper mines in Michigan, alien abductions, to sightings of Bigfoot, Kyle and Cam explore it all in a fun and entertaining way. They bring to light local legends from around the world, strange encounters from otherworldly monsters, and discoveries of ancient artifacts found in impossible locations. Whether it's listener stories that have been sent in or interviews with authors and researchers, listening will likely expand your perspective. If you are interested in fringe topics and enjoy a good story in a laid-back format, then join Expanded Perspectives. To listen, just go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to The Murder Diaries. Okay, let's get back to our show. Okay, 
So where we left off, our killer has taken the body in his car, brought her to the car wash, laid her body on the ground while he cleaned his car. No one saw. And then he puts her back in the car. Insane. It really is. I mean, it screams, I don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to do whatever I want to whoever I want, and no one's going to stop me. That's what it screams to me. Yeah. That's dangerous. There is a scary confidence and comfortability with only the second murder. But I really believe, though, that he's learning, like, what where he can go in the city or town, yeah. whatever, he however you want. He spends wanna... a lot of time. Planning. He does. He does. I think, I think it's, it's because of the planning that I think he's starting to get this confidence, he honestly. He spends a lot of time driving around the area because he has his night spray. Yeah. So the following morning, we're getting into the discovery now, a man went hunting in the more rural part of the East Baton Rouge Parish, basically where it meets Ascension Parish. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing the names of these uh, towns wrong. I know in Louisiana they, they pronounce things uh, differently sometimes. But the area where he was hunting would not be a place for people to hunt or go to escape the city for long because there was a construction occurring and housing developments going up. Okay. So he was kind of getting in his last bit of squirrel hunting that he could do in the area. As he walked closer to the newly constructed street of Peugeot, he saw something that looked odd. At the end of the street, near some construction equipment. So he approached it slowly. He thought at first it might be an animal. And then slowly he realized in absolute horror that what he was looking at was the mutilated body of a woman. That's another thing. All these people that are finding these bodies, that must be the most terrifying, bone-shaking, blood-curdling thing ever. Because it's a mutilated body. And he. So he ran back to his truck and he calls 911. The fire department reached the scene before police and they radioed to them saying, This is the body of a black female. She's dead at the scene. Paramedics are not needed. She is beyond saving. And after thanking them, the car that was dispatched to the scene called back to headquarters and requested. Crime scene technicians and homicide detectives come to the scene as quickly as possible. Now, Catherine had been left outside in the elements in early January, but it was Louisiana where the temperatures at night don't often dip below 40 degrees, and that's four degrees Celsius for our non-American listeners. There you go. You're thinking. (laughs) So it was able to... I have to Google it every time. I'll I'll get it eventually. (laughs) That's okay. So it was able to be determined that she had died just hours later that would have been harder to do if it because in january like up here in january is freezing right so the body would have been frozen and it would have been difficult to determine time of death but there it wasn't the crime scene was searched for evidence but nothing was found her wounds were brutal and she was naked if she had been killed there their thought process was there would have definitely been more blood because what had happened to her was horrific. And there would be clothing somewhere, but there was nothing, which indicated that the woman had been killed at another location and brought to this one. 
The scene was documented and the woman's fingerprints were taken. There was no ID, so they would have to work to figure out who this was. Detectives noted that the body was posed in this location on purpose. She was situated just beneath a dead-end sign. The killer's idea of a macabre joke. I don't, like, yeah, like, I think you're right. I, I He's posing the bodies. Yeah. This is getting worse. That's very rare for a serial killer to pose the bodies because sometimes, oftentimes, they don't want the bodies to be found. So they'll dump them in locations where they think no one will look. He could have put this, he could have put Catherine Hall's body somewhere where it would never be found. He chose not to. He lives in Louisiana. He could throw it in the water. Right. And that would be the end of it there because obviously there's... Different animals there than around here that would take care of that in a second. Right. Uh, yeah, I am. Um, he also had a chance to leave it at the at the car wash, to be honest with you. Yeah. He could have left it anywhere. Interesting. Well, the actual crime scene was quickly discovered because, remember, he left the jacket at the scene. Right. And a man found Catherine Brown's leather jacket on a fence. And inside the pocket, he found her food stamp card. And because he didn't want someone to go without their food stamps card, he and his wife returned it to the proper location. Like on the card, it says, if lost, return to, and they brought it back. Okay. So police searched the area where the man said his jacket was found. And they, at that location, find blood all over the ground. So they know it's the crime scene. The man also found... um, the industrial strength zip tie on the ground and they knew based on her body and the ligature marks around her neck that she had been choked with something that was thin like a zip tie so that's another reason why they were like this is definitely the scene these are actually really good clues like they are getting like a a good at least this on this murder a good indication of what took place right and like that the body was moved obviously brought there you can kind of get a sense of like the path that he took to drop the body off right to a point you know and you can i feel like if you continue to unfortunately there's going to be victims but if you continue to see like where he's driving or where he's going you can kind of pinpoint maybe like where he lives or like you know what's what I mean? his radius like what's his radius yeah well that's the conundrum with serial killers you don't want them to kill more people of but not, yeah. every time there's another victim there's a chance for them to screw up and you to get a clue right That's the unfortunate part about it. Right. Now, the reason why they were able to make the connection between the returning of Catherine Hall's food stamp card and they investigated it because, no, they don't investigate every time a food stamp card is returned. But when she was first identified as a Jane Doe, when the Jane Doe gets fingerprinted, they're able to connect it with Catherine Hall quickly because she was in the system because she was arrested in 1994. Okay. So, according to Catherine's autopsy, her cause of death was listed as exsanguination from stab wounds to a jugular vein. Homicide detectives in Baton Rouge unfortunately saw dead or murdered sex workers on a semi-regular basis. But this was different. The killer had mutilated this body. There was extreme overkill. The excessive stabbing of her genitals, eyes, stomach, the ripping open of her limbs, and the fact that he posed the body, which is very rare, 
that wasn't just some John who killed a sex worker and left her at the location. This man moved the body, wanted her found, and wanted her found a specific way under a sign that mocked her death. This man was sadistic. Yes, absolutely. Some skin cells were found beneath the nails of Catherine Hall, and a pubic hair was found in her teeth. Oh, okay. So at least we have some evidence to be bagged this time. Yep. Okay. Detectives ran the samples through the system, but there was no match. They guessed either that their guy had not been arrested yet, or wherever he had been arrested had not updated their information into the newly formed CODIS system. Now, this is where things get hard. We know that the same person murdered Anne Bryan and Catherine Hall. But at the time, there was no connection made between the two murders. Because why would there be? Yes, there was similar, almost exact mutilation of the body done post-mortem. But the victimology in the eyes of the detectives was completely different. The Bryan case was so far outside the thought process because, one, it happened five years ago. So it's not on the mind of the detectives. They're not thinking, it's not like, oh, uh, there was a crime a year ago that was similar to this. No. Right. And, and you're right. It, it, it is bizarre. You have the the attack and murder of an 80-year-old woman, and now you have this sex worker who is, how old was she? I'm sorry. 29, 20, 30. 20, okay. She was about it, to turn 30. So it's, it, it's not like he has like a, like a type. You know what I mean? Right, because no one's putting together the murder of a white 81-year-old woman in an affluent retirement home and a 30-year-old black sex worker in downtown Baton Rouge. Yeah, and do you really think that that's like 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 you think that's coincidence? Of course he planned it. No. Nope. I I think that this is planned. Yes. He's switching up He's the switching victimology. Up, right, exactly. They're not going to suspect anything him going after a black sex worker. Yep. I mean, he knows it, which is crazy to me. Yes. So he's thinking, okay, I've given ample time. I've given five years of not doing anything or getting caught. Yep. I haven't done anything. And now I'm going to change it up now. I'm going to go for someone of, of different age, different color, so there is no connection at all. Yes. Like, that really makes me think that this guy's got, like, a board on the wall where he <laughs> writes out all his, like, his plans. Thing. Yeah, exactly. Well, he's got a lot of time on his hands. A lot of time. So that will be a clue as to who this guy is. Interesting. Somebody who has a lot of time. Now, although it seems like the victimology between the two women are the polar opposites, I believe there's a similarity between the two women. They both fall into the most vulnerable people of our society, an elderly woman and a sex worker of color in a major city in the United States. Who has an addiction problem uh, yes. to boot. So they're very vulnerable. Right. And he takes advantage of that. They're easy targets. And he acted on that. Yeah. So, like I said before, most times the public and law enforcement didn't bat an eye if they heard about the death of a sex worker. But the murder of Catherine Hall had been different. It was widely reported on the news and people were on edge especially those who frequented the downtown area at night or were sex workers. Now, our Terry had been nervous because even though she wasn't a sex worker, she still worked at night 
all alone at the Circle K store. In those quiet hours of the night, there was nothing stopping someone from coming into the store and hurting her. She was starting to get nervous. She was older now. She wasn't like, you know, she felt like maybe I can't protect myself as good as I could when I was in my 20s or 30s. Right. So now this is something that I didn't share with you yet. But Terry suffered from grand mal seizures since she she had a childhood accident when she was three years old. And because of her seizures, she was unable to have a driver's license. So it wasn't even just like she could just leave the store. She didn't have a car. She had to rely on people to drop her off and pick her up at work. It was mostly her boyfriend who would do that. Wow. Okay. So um, that's interesting because that is also kind of a a vulnerability as well. Exactly. Um, That's interesting. Okay. So the killer was also watching the news and was happy that the two cases hadn't been connected. He would again switch up the kind of woman he killed. But he was escalating. There had been five years between the first two murders, but there would only be four months between his second and third. Okay. He was going to kill again. In early May, he had began his search for his next victim, as metaphorically as far away as he could from downtown Baton Rouge night scene as he could go. And that landed him in the Pollard Estates, in the heart of the city, in the early morning hours, just as the sun was coming up. So see, again, polar opposites, essentially. Seedy downtown area, rich, like, home estates in the morning. Yeah, I mean, like, this 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 is unbelievable, actually. Yeah. I hate calling someone super sophisticated or, you know, really smart to someone that's just a monster. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it is true, though. It, it, he it was here using at least. his intelligence yes. here. So the residents of the wealthy housing development thought that they were free from worry about what had happened to the sex worker at the beginning of the year. Right? They were a million miles away from what happened to Catherine Hall. The yearly housing dues for the residents of Polar Estates um, went to pay for an off-duty police officer who patrolled their streets at night. Okay, I mean that's that's a little bit better than the security mm-hmm. guard that they has to take out garbage. Completely believed they were safe, but Hardy Mosley Schmidt, a 52-year-old married mother of three, did not like taking chances. She was always careful. She had been a runner her whole life, and she loved it. She was known as a woman with impeccable style and taste. She always received compliments on the way she had decorated the family home and what a lovely job she did raising the three beautiful, well-mannered children that she shared with her husband, Estelle, Joelle, and Robert. She often told people that she felt so lucky. She had come from a wonderful family, her father being a family court judge, And now she had one of her own. She was in love with her husband, Bob, who was an attorney, and he was in love with her. It had always been such a busy schedule with the kids, from when they were young to when they were older. Hardy ran around with them and kept the house together and engaged in all of the social events that the Pollard Estates had to offer. And that was why she had her own thing. That's why she loved running. Hardy was training for a race, 
she was almost always training for a race. One of her greatest accomplishments was when she ran the Boston Marathon. She would wake up before anyone in her family did and she would hit the pavement. But she also knew that it could be dangerous running alone. So she took all of the precautions she could. She stayed within the Polar Estates. They were the streets she knew and was familiar with. She also knew the houses she was running by and the families within them. She knew where she could stop if she ever needed help, and she never ran with headphones on, so she could always stay alert. She didn't really want to run with them in anyway. She loved clearing her mind and taking in the beautiful surroundings. It was her peaceful moment. She also ran in the early morning hours. She had read that it was the safest time to run because people were all around. They were leaving for work or drinking their coffee or starting to run their errands. So it was more likely that people would see you and be home if you had to go to their house and ask for help. And that was all so smart. Those are more precautions than I've ever heard of anyone taking. But unfortunately, none of them would help her. For three weeks, the killer had been watching her. He was entranced by the blonde woman who went on her daily runs. And on March 30th, 1999, he chose to act on his fantasies. He noticed her as she was running up Quail Run Drive. He knew that if he was going to attack her, he had to be quick about it. This was a residential area, and as Hardy had planned, people were beginning to get up. It was Sunday, so people were headed to church. So he began to speed up his car. And when he got to her, a tactic we've seen before on the podcast, on our last episode actually, he hit her, knocking her down into a ditch on the side of the road. He jumped out of the car and rushed to her. He had a zip tie ready to put around her neck. Hardy was still disoriented by being hit by a car and wasn't able to fight off her attacker. He pulled the zip tie tight. He had learned his lesson from Catherine. He pulled tighter and tighter until she was no longer alive. He then quickly placed her body into his car. Again, no one had seen anything. Uh, That is one of the scariest things I've heard because it's like, here we are, residential area, everyone's getting up, and you just killed somebody in front of all their houses. Put them, put this body in your car and drove off. Yeah. You can imagine this scene taking place outside of someone's house while the family's inside getting ready for church. Yeah. It's, Crazy. It's insane. We say that word a lot. We do. But it I, is. I, it is I, truly yeah. insane. I have like two words right now. That's all I can think of. <laughs> I'm in shock. <laughs> I know. I, it's crazy. The whole time I was writing this, I'm like, John's going to lose his mind. John's just going to say crazy and insane a shit ton of times. Because <laughs> honestly, it is. It really is. It's what else could you, you say, say? Right? So the killer drove to a nearby park. And this, I'll mention this later, but this is the first time that things are going the way he wants them to go. So we're going to see something completely different happen here. Oh, no. Don't tell me he's into weird crap. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. So the killer drove to a nearby park. He went through the recreational areas into the back where things were more isolated. He believed he was safe. 
It was 5.30 a.m., and most would be getting ready for Sunday services. He climbed into the back seat with the body, where he took off her clothes, and then his own. He then engaged in necrophilia. No. Raping her body. Oh. What? What? I don't even know. I almost want to just get up right now. <laughs> I want to get up. This is crazy. I know. It's, it's This is really bad. This is really bad. This is why this has to be a two-parter. So this, this, uh, okay, so that might be the end game goal here. Yeah. Do you think maybe that this John, is what he wanted? it's want? not the end game. It's not even, we're not even there yet. Oh, my God. You don't even understand this man. This he poor woman. This, sick. These poor victims, honestly. This yes. is insane. Oh, my God. Okay. So he dressed himself afterwards, and he placed Hardy's body in the trunk. He had some errands to run. Oh, yeah. So he went, and yeah. he ran his errands with the body still in the trunk. How brazen is that? And don't forget, it's it's late May in Louisiana, so it's it's smelling. It's starting to smell now. <laughs> um, so he, to dispose of the body, goes to nearby St. James Parish. Now, this is interesting because he's choosing to dispose of the body in a different parish. And he picks a stretch of road that's less traveled than the others, and it's next to a bayou. Back at the Pollard Estates, Bob, Hardy's husband, was very worried when she didn't return home after her run. She was usually back by the time that he got up. And thinking that maybe she stopped to talk to a neighbor or that she'd run into a friend, he drove around the neighborhood to see if he could find her. This makes me so sad. It is sad. He stopped to speak to everyone he saw and asked them if they had seen Hardy. They had not. This made him worry. She never ventured out of the development for her runs, and she was nowhere to be found. He rushed home and called the police to report his wife missing. The Schmidt family would not have to wait long to find out what happened to their mother and wife. Hardy's body was found the following day. This murder was completely different. Now, in my opinion, just my opinion here, there was no body mutilation in this murder because it had gone the way he wanted it to go. I think he was shocked about that. There was no struggle, and there had been a struggle in the murders of Anne and Catherine, and that's what angered him and triggered this massive response. So in addition... He raped the dead body of this woman, and that was his release. I know it's uncomfortable yeah. to talk about. But. but do you think also that he followed her, he saw her routine and what she looked like and what she was doing for a while? Yes, yeah, so three weeks. is it possible, too, that like maybe there was no mutilation also because maybe he was attracted to the way she looked? Uh, no, because... No? Okay, it doesn't work that way. Wait till we get to victim number four. Oh, okay, never mind. Uh, I think he... This is just what he wanted to do with this one. I don't think there's a major thought process. In me knowing the other things that take place, okay. I think this is just what he wanted to do. I think he was trying different things. And that one worked. Yeah, because this is what he wanted. He wanted to know if he would like that. More. 
Yeah. Than the other. We'll stuff. get into okay. why he did this to Hardy because it has to do with um, the different things he was getting himself into. Yeah. You know this is this is unfortunate. You know why? Because I am. I, I mean, even though this is crazy and disgusting. You're gonna leave me on a cliffhanger now. Like I don't even. I don't want to wait. I can't imagine everybody else, but I don't I'm even want to wait. To be honest, it's, it's too much. Too much information. I know. I know. So, also, the killer purposely left the body in a different parish so another police force would be responsible. No one, nobody is going to tie together the murders of Anne Bryan, 81 year old in a retirement home. Black sex worker, 30-year-old Catherine Hall, and 52-year-old stay-at-home mother from Polar Estates, especially when no post-mortem mutilation was done to Hardy. It's all different. Nobody's connecting this. Different victimology, and with this murder, a different MO. Yep. It's hard to, hey, listen, you can't blame the police. How No, how, how can would you, you ever put this together? Especially because the St. James... Um, police forces are going to be parish St. James Parish police forces are going to be handling this yeah. one. I mean, the only thing that you could say with a hundred percent certainty is you have somebody killing other people, right? In the state of Louisiana, no, because until they later are going to determine through DNA that the semen found in Hardy's body did not belong to her husband, Bob was a suspect for a very long time oh, in this really? murder. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Which is sad for him because he loved his wife so much. He was so sad. Yeah. And think about those kids too. But the, um, it was able, the semen was what saved him. The semen sample that was found in her body. Okay. Time for our final palate cleanser. Okay. To just like, whew, relax a little there. Let's take a break to hear about our third sponsor of the show, Gerber Life Insurance. So let's take a break for a moment to talk about life insurance. If you're listening to this Gerber Life Guaranteed Life Insurance Sponsorship ad, there's a good chance that you're alive. And if you're not, well, this may not be of interest to you. Now, I know what you're thinking. Life insurance? I'm going to live forever. Death is what happens to other people. Well, for the sake of argument, let's assume you're wrong and that someday you won't be listening to podcasts anymore. I know it's not easy to talk about, so I'll do the talking. If you're 50 plus and alive or 50 to 75 in New York, you can apply for Gerber Life Guaranteed Life Insurance with guaranteed acceptance regardless of your health. And since your life insurance is guaranteed, you don't have to get a medical exam. In fact, you don't even have to fill out a health questionnaire. For a free quote, just visit GerberLifeFamily.com. Then when you stop, I mean, if you stop listening to podcasts, your family can use the insurance money to help cover your final expenses or anything else. Your kids already inherited your ears, allergies, and questionable singing voice. Don't make them inherit your final expenses tab too. See websites for term and restrictions. Okay, are we ready to get back into this? I'm always ready. Well, our killer is still not satiated. Just like the time between the second and third murders, the time between the third and fourth murders would only be a five-month gap. It was November of 1999. The year had not even ended, and he was taking his third life. He was escalating. We're not even close to done either. 
I do I do find it interesting that he went so long without doing anything and now it's becoming shorter and shorter and shorter. He this guy is into weird things. Yes. And I don't think that he's able to keep it under control any longer. John, he's not even done. Yeah. It gets more weird. Okay. So Joyce Williams was a beautiful woman who had fallen on very hard times. She was born on May 29, 1963. She had grown up loving her family, her parents, and her younger sister. She loved to sing and dance and got good grades in school. After she graduated from McKinley Senior High School in Baton Rouge, she went on to a two-year program at Southern University, which is located in Scotlandville, a community located six miles from the Baton Rouge area. Joyce had big goals for herself, but things were not easy. She fell back on fast food jobs throughout her 20s until she was able to accomplish the things that she truly had in store for herself. And eventually, she met a man. The two married, and they went on to have two children. But over time, the pressure became too much for her. To ease her feelings, she turned to drugs. Then she took drugs because it numbed the pain of the things that weren't going well. And then the drugs became a necessity in her life, and she lost all that she knew. She had fallen victim to addiction. By November of 1999, Joyce spent her time in Baton Rouge and Scotlandville looking for ways to make money to feed her habit in the same location she once had big dreams for herself. Although she was a shadow of who she once was, there were still glimpses of her true essence that came out every once in a while. On November 12th, she had been headed to a friend's house, looking to get high. Our killer saw her walking towards him. He was picky with who he chose. Actually, this is wild, a few weeks prior, he had picked up a 16-year-old who was walking on the streets of Baton Rouge. And she was a sex worker who was newly into drugs. And he chose not to kill her. Instead, he told her about the dangers of being on the streets in Baton Rouge and being a sex worker. Oh, well, thanks. Well, it's he. his victimology is interesting because he chooses people who are vulnerable and can't really put up a fight. And I think she was young and strong and able to put up a fight. He also, you will learn later, chooses people who are around his age. Okay. So um, as Joyce was walking, he she had on this long flowy dress that had a slit in the dress. And he saw her legs and he liked the way her legs looked. So that is what made him stop and turn his car around and drive past again. And there he was, switching things up again. He went from Hardy Schmidt in the Polar to States, and now another black sex worker, but in a different location closer to Scotlandville, which is six miles away from Baton Rouge. So he slowed down when he got to her, and she leaned into his window, and she told him that she was headed to a friend's house to get high. He told her that he would give her a ride and $10 for oral sex. And she agreed. He drove her to her friend's house and waited in the car while she went inside to get high. When she came back out, she was content. 
Um, He was very nervous while he was waiting there and he thought about leaving several times. Now, Joyce was a user of crack, but on this night, she had only smoked pot. She was planning to get high later on in the night. So she was relaxed and she told the man to take her where he felt most comfortable as long as he drove her back to the area that they were in at that moment. As the two drove, the killer uh, put on the oldie station and the two of them sang songs together. At one point, Joyce said to the man, if you weren't so nice, I'd be nervous that you were driving me so far away out of my parish. I mean, these two, they were singing songs together. Yeah, but think car. about it. I mean, he wants to make this person feel not suspicious and you have to feel comfortable. I know, right? it's just nuts. So after a long, happy drive, the killer finally pulled off somewhere. He turned down Rosedale Road, which was located in Port Allen. There, there were only a handful of homes on the road, and it was mostly just acres and acres of sugarcane fields. Now, most of the fields had been chopped down and burned, but there was one section where the cane was still high, so he chose to park there because no one could see. Joyce told the man that she had to get out and use the bathroom, and he said he had to, too. As she walked close to the field and squatted down to relieve herself, the killer snuck behind her with a zip tie in his hand. But he messed up. The zip tie, instead of going to her neck, caught her at her mouth. And that's when he tried to make it tight. So she started fighting with him and was able to break free. She got to her feet and he kicked them out from underneath her. When she went to get up, he had the zip tie ready. And this time he got it around her neck. He pulled it tight and waited for her to stop gasping for breath. It took two to three minutes. Do you imagine two to three minutes while she's no, suffocating? That's, no, that's absolute torture. After he knew that Joyce had died, he placed her carefully back into the passenger seat and placed the seatbelt across her. Her limp body could not stay upright, and she ended up slumped over his lap. This time, he was going to be able to take his time. Because he didn't have to pick up Terry for hours. What? It's Terry's boyfriend. Get out of here. Wait. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait. Hold on. You're telling me that this man mm-hmm. is her boyfriend. It's Terry's bo- The boyfriend that she met the day after Anne Bryan was murdered. What? Okay, this is crazy. That was good. That was so good. Yeah. And remember when he had Hardy in the trunk and he had to run errands? Yeah, yeah. He had to pick Terry up from work. Right, because she needs somebody to take her from back to forth, and that was the boyfriend. Whoa! And that's why he has so much time at night to ride around and look for things, because she's working the night shift. Right, so he's able to just... What does he do? Well, that's a really good question. Sean Gillis, who is Terry's boyfriend, doesn't like to work. So he's oftentimes unemployed and Terry basically takes care of the both of them. 
there were there are times where he she kind of forces him to get a job like he only works when he has to when the bills are really bad okay like for instance when um with the murder of hardy that was a company car he had because he was working temporarily for a company but then he left he he never stays with some company more than months you have me shook right now that is insane are you th- oh <laughs> imagine that that's your boyfriend yeah and you met him the day after he committed his first murder wow okay so that that is how he's able to be undetected even by someone that's with him because she works the night shift yep and she's going to continue to work the night shift because he doesn't have a job yep Sean Gillis had been dating Terry for about five years at this point. And remember that gap between the murders? Yeah. It's because he was in a new relationship. Oh, my God. Hold on. It gets more intense. Okay. He had met her the day after he killed Anne Bryan. Terry loved Sean. He was good to her. He loved to spend time with her. He was sweet and affectionate. He would randomly kiss her on the cheek or come up and hug her from behind, and it would make her heart melt. He also helped her build up a relationship with her children, the children that she had her parents raise when she left her home back in the 80s. He was a source of a lot of good in her life, and that's why she ignored all the blaring signs that something was wrong. In the five years that the couple had been together, they had only had sex three times. <sighs> okay. It's not a good sign, guys. No, it's not. Okay. I cannot believe that this is... You got me good. <laughs> Finally. You always figure it out. This was so good, the way you kind of presented this. Yeah. It makes this right now that much better. I know. That's why I didn't want... I didn't want to wait to do it on part two because I know some of you guys go Google things and you do too and I didn't want anyone Googling. Well, I wouldn't be Googling things, you know. But that's... Because there's a week before so I wanted to give it now. Well, I won't. Don't worry. So Sean told Terry that he just had no desire to, to have sex. Okay. So she's a woman. So immediately, like we all would, thought that maybe it was her. So she asked him... You know, is it me? Are you not attracted to me? And he told her, no, it's not that at all. It's just something I'm not into. So once they move in together, she found out pretty quickly what he was into. He had an obsession with porn. And that's what was, that's what he, he was using his obsession with pornography and use on the computer, that's why there was that gap between the five years. Okay, so he was using that to not commit yes, murder. Yes, he was still using what he did. What he did to Anne satiated him through those five years. But then when he started again, he couldn't stop himself. Okay. So Terry's going to talk to her mother about it, right? Because she feels like kind of insecure about it. But her mother's like, well, maybe that's just like what he's into. He's everyone's different kind of thing. And if he's a good guy, then, you you know, it's pretty hard to find a good guy, especially as you get older. The dating pool is very small. So she would find towels or pieces of clothing that he would ejaculate into hidden. Come on. I know. Sorry. Hidden in random places. And she always like joked with him about it when she would find them. 
But like she knew. What? That's so weird. We, I, we, can, we sorry. I was trying to rush through that one. Too. <laughs> I'm not going to let you. That is so bizarre. Come on. Because she's trying to make light of it because it really does hurt her feelings. Like, I know. I understand. Oh, this is what you find attractive. And like she's thinking he's just looking at porn, but he's looking at not porn. Okay. I'm, I'm just saying. I, I'm not trying to make a joke of this, but listen, some dude jizzing in cl- a cl- a clothes, John, clothes objects and leaving them strewn about the house is kind of weird to me. Well, like he would try to hide them, but she would always find it's them. It's like we're dealing with a, with an ejaculation uh, treasure hunt or something. Like yeah. this is weird. That is your first sign that something's wrong here. I would say also the fact that like there's no true intimacy. Like there's – that's a huge aspect of a relationship is is sex. And if that's not taking place, then there's something wrong. He's not able to connect on an intimate level like that with his no, partner. No, I mean, I think there were, like you said, I think there are a lot of signs here. You got mm-hmm. the dry, you know, the, the really rock hard socks. You got the fact that he doesn't go to work. It's kind of like there's a lot well, of signs. And he, and he refuses to work. Right. Because this has become his life. Right. And also the intimacy that, well, the lack thereof is another sign too. Well, the physical intimacy, because I will say that he, because there's um, one amazing source for this podcast that I've used is um, a book that was written by Susan Mustafa and Sue Israel called Dismembered. And in that book, they actually have letters that he wrote to Terry. And he was very, very sweet and affectionate. So it was. it's really just like that physical aspect because he – normal sex isn't something that turns him on. Yeah. And I, that's yeah, no, what I get it, it is. I get that. And you know what? For her at least, I, I can – I understand like, look, she's getting older. You know, she's looking for someone. The first two relationships didn't work. You And you, you know, you're hoping that the this – this third one isn't going to fail too. So like, you know, you don't, you, you are um, willing to look past every single weird thing that happens because you have a guy who treats you decently and doesn't hit you and is sweet to you. Yeah. And she's trying to turn over a new leaf and re and reinvent herself. And he's helping her with her kids. Correct. Correct. So it all is for a reason. And that's why I wanted to interweave the story of Terry into the cases that's taking place because sometimes we often look at the family members of these men who kill as how didn't they know what happened and when you look at her past and what has happened to get her to this point it's so much more understandable no it is and i think you did a really good job tying this first part all together and i i really enjoyed this thanks very shocking though a lot of moments where my jaw is just to the floor and i'm just looking at Kay with the blank stare of shock and and uh, i don't even know disgust <laughs> disgust yeah like i definitely I, think we're going to skip lunch today i think you're it's right it's pretty gross i think i think we're going to do that so um, it's also he is obsessed with the computer. Now, this is like the dawning of the Internet age. Right. And all of these people who are into weird things finally have an outlet to be into these weird things without other people knowing, which is what creates his obsession with the Internet. So one day, months before the murder of Hardy Schmidt, which is the second murder which is the third murder that takes place. Sean calls Terry over to the computer and shows her a website he found. Terry was horrified when she looked at it. It was just dead women and severed limbs. He was fascinated. 
and she hoped that it wasn't real. She told him to take it down and he did, but he memorized it so he could go back to it. But this, I think, was two things. It shows two things here. Either one, he was trying to test and see if she was into it or or he truly just thinks everyone's as fascinated with this stuff as he is no i don't believe that i believe your first uh your first theory there because i think that he is in secretive mode he's doing everything that he can by going to do things at nighttime moving around you know, like he's planning things so he doesn't get caught and people don't see his crazy, disgusting, monstrous behavior. Right. So I don't believe that. I think he he's testing her to see if she's willing to accept this like everything else that she accepts. Right. And like because she's thinking, oh, isn't it so nice that I work the night shift and my boyfriend chooses to stay up during the night shift and go to bed with me during the day? Like, isn't that so nice? But that's because he's not hunting. Nice. Yeah. He's literally hunting, hunting while you're working. So he memorized the website with the dead bodies and limbs on it for later. And Sean would spend endless hours masturbating to those images. So then that became his connection between sexual pleasure and violence. Like they were one in the same. That was the only thing that would give him sexual pleasure. Yeah, I don't actually think he has the ability to separate the two, actually. No. I think he thinks they're one and the same. And that's what he'd been thinking about, the severed limbs when he picked up Joyce. That's what he wanted to do. He liked her legs. Ooh, creepy. And now he had hours to himself, and he was going to try it out. Because now Terry's at work, and he has Joyce in the car. And he's going to bring her home. And he's going to do what he saw on that website. And he's going to take his post-mortem mutilation further than he ever had before. Wow. That is crazy. And I can't believe that now we're at a cliffhanger. (laughs) Yeah. And folks, that's where we're going to leave off for this week. We will get into the past also of Sean Gillis. And we're going to talk about the other four victims but you don't have to wait two weeks for the next episode like we said in the beginning we're going to release the next and final part of the murders of sean gillis next weekend yes christmas weekend how nice you get to spend christmas together with us but i'm sorry it's with a case like this uh but before we go we'd like to thank as always the newest members of our patreon page so we just want to say Thank you to Brittany Filicello, Courtney Yoon, Leslie, Golden Murphy, Jeffrey Miller, Maddie Gagnon, Ellen, Hannah Quinlan, Giselle Davis, Siren Syme, Kirsten, Vanessa Peterson, Rachel Conran, Kelsey O, Olivia Cannings, Copeland Norcross, Bobby Lynn, Donna, Julie McCluskey, Jenny Martin, Luna, Pilar Patton, Pilar Patton, Chelsea Eckerman, Connie G, Ansley, Sarah Brady, Julia McIntyre, Elise, Carrie Potts, Maria Liberto, Anne Bradbury, Lindsay Robinson, 
and Samara Trenhoen. Thank you guys so much. And if you are interested in joining Patreon and getting two bonus episodes a month, you could do that at patreon.com slash true crime couple. And for all of our Patreon supporters that are $5 and up for the month of December, we wanted to get you guys a special gift to thank you for supporting us this year. So we had magnets made and we're going to send magnets out to all of you guys. Guys are awesome little magnets. I love them. I, I wanted to take one to put on my, no. my van. But They're for you guys. She wouldn't let me. <laughs> but they are really cool, though. And I, you know, I like them. All right, guys. Oh, oh, and that's another thing, too. I just recently put up on our merch page, uh, Don't Park Next to Fans. Oh, yeah, we did that. Merchandise, Mm -hmm. yes. Another one's going to go up, too, with more like simple writing. But for now, we got you with that one. All right, guys. So until next time, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.